0: Okay, let's, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for bringing us together. We thank you that uh, your word is truth, that the Lord Jesus is truth as well, that he, as the word, has come to us uh, not just through what others have written about him, but he came in the flesh, and that your word comes to us as true revelation. Uh, you are the very word of God, and we pray that we would experience you, that we would hear the Lord Jesus' voice this morning. That we would hear it in the next hour as we go into worship, and that we look forward to the day when we will uh, hear Jesus' words uttered with real human lungs uh, in the new heavens and new earths, and that we will see his face. So as we long for that time, please help us in this day uh, to hear him even now by faith. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. We're going to uh, continue our discussion of dominion and faith, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week with more talk about common grace. And how we got here uh, was the flood. The flood happened because uh, at some point in human history, humans became uh, so corrupt, every thought of their heart was only evil continually. Uh, Genesis 6 comes to us as uh, a picture of not just man in his fallen state, but man in a fallen state where it's so bad there's only one man on uh, all the earth who can be described as righteous and blameless. And so God has to take a historically unprecedented and thankfully a historically unrepeatable, because he's promised not to do it again, a solution to this problem. And he wipes out all of humanity except for this one man. And he saves humanity th- by saving this one family through the ark, uh, and there's a new creation as humanity and the animals that are saved come out of this ark. God is recreating the world anew, but it's new under grace. It's, uh, so all of what we had in the garden, at least in terms of the promises and the categories of what man ought to be and should be, are reinstituted, but now under God's grace. And this grace is the grace that he extends not just to... Um, the believer, the one who has faith, but to everyone. Everyone is the beneficiary of common grace. Even animals are the beneficiary of common grace. And so, what I want to start with we talked about last week that this common grace uh, is fundamentally uh, God's presence by His Holy Spirit. Uh, grace is presence. Um, we're not Roman Catholics in the sense that we see grace as coming kind of in a more mechanical kind of infused sense of of again I don't I don't want to put words in their mouth but as I understand it grace in in the Roman Catholic sense is more kind of like you get you get ba- your batteries recharged in one sense like the eucharist is kind of ingesting grace uh you receive the substance of the grace as it enters into yourself and you have to kind of keep coming back to the church to receive uh, this kind of grace, in a more substantive sense, reformers rejected that view and 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 got back to a biblical view, which is grace is not this this more magical transfer of of a substance that we get to have, but it's it's God's presence. And so, uh, the doctrine of the the reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper, I think, epitomizes this view of of how God's grace comes to us. It's God's grace um, is is by the presence of the Holy Spirit in the context of this memorial sacrifice, uh, symbolized in the elements. And um, Christ is present by his spirit um, as we partake of the elements. But this this picture of grace coming to us as God's presence is also what's going on with common grace. God's spirit is abiding with humanity still. He's abiding with humanity still. And um, this is not abiding necessarily unto eternal salvation, but it's abiding with man so that he's not going to die instantaneously uh, the moment that he's alive. And so why are people not dropping dead right now in a state of sin? The answer is common grace. The answer is common grace. So we talked a little bit more about that um, last week, uh, and we're going to continue that today. And I want to continue that by first um, uh, exploring Genesis 8 and 9. We're going to camp out in here and really just look at all that we've talked about before with image of God and its application in these kind of five characteristics of man's dignity, man's potential, man's responsibility... Uh, communion with one another and with God, and then with home. These, these categories of the image of God are reinstituted, if you will, uh, under grace in the Noahic covenant. And so I, I want to talk about that from, a, from that perspective uh, today. And um, before we. So turn your Bibles to Genesis 8. Uh, Genesis 8. Verse 20, and, uh, okay, Genesis 8, verse 20, I'm going to read it for us here, Genesis 8, verse 20, so the, the flood happened, the flood has subsided, uh, every living beast and every creature came out of the ark, and this is what happens after everyone comes out. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, Now, real, real quick here. Um, in your Bibles, um, your, the term Lord should be all caps. Uh, up to this point, I think we've only had um, m- many of the expressions... Uh, or names of God have been just God, but this is, this is the Lord um, Yahweh, the covenant God. Uh, he's identifying himself as, as the covenant God. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. All right, we'll stop there. So, first and foremost, who, uh, God's making promises. God's making promises. And who is he making these promises with? Open question. Who, who is making the, the promises? Who is God making the promises to? Man, Noah. Who else? Every living creature. Every living creature? On the earth, yes. And, and the earth, yes, the earth as well. His, and then their offspring, right. Everything. <laughs> Literally everything. Uh, all, the whole created order is here. Uh, there's promises for uh, Noah, there's promises for his offspring. There's promises for the animals. There's promises for even cold and heat and summer and winter and the seasons. Uh, there's, there's promises for day and night. Uh, this, is, this is now all of creation now in covenant with God after a judgment. And what, what fundamentally is God promising to do here? Now, as I ask that question, we got some rules. There's some rules here, so that's not what I'm talking about with this question. What's uh, the rules are part of that? Every every covenant's always got covenant promises and covenant obligations. Um, but what what is God promising to give here? Not to destroy the earth by the flood again. Correct. Not going to destroy the world by a flood again, uh, and. Kind of by implication and also explicitly, like, what else does that mean? Is it just like, I'm gonna I'm gonna destroy the earth by by an alien invasion, but not the flood? You know, it's kind of like a, you can read it one sense kind of narrowly. It's a hollow promise if uh, God's not gonna destroy the world by a flood, but like every lawyer, you know, there's always exceptions. You know, these unstated, uh, unstated things in the contract. Well, I didn't promise not to destroy the world by other means. You know. Um, you know what I'm going at here? What, like beyond just not destroying the world by a flood, what is he also promising to do positively? Preserve the earth. Right. And that's, you see that really in um, 8.22. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Right. So an ongoing promise of preservation going forward. Now, key phrase. And this this is kind of the proviso to the contract. This is this is that um, this is not a promise to never destroy the world, because it says, "While the earth remains," this is this is prophetic. This this is anticipating. There is a time when the this present world will pass away, but it's not going to pass away through a catastrophic flood that is happening in this in um, uh, the mean. That doesn't repeat what I just did. Um, it's it's going to be a, a, a different passing away. So there's so pay attention because that's that's the final judgment. <laughs> that's that's the first prophecy we have of maybe not the first one. I don't want to don't quote me there. I think it's the first one, but don't don't hold me to that. of Of this final judgment. And Second Peter um, draws this contrast between the flood, where God destroyed the earth by water, and then this final judgment where God unmakes the world through fire. Um, And so there's this anticipation of this final day, even baked into this phrase, while the earth remains. But until then, until then, there's preservation. God's not going to unmake the world and recreate it um, like he he just did. Any any thoughts on that? Any, any, Any questions there? So, Verse uh, Genesis 8.22, while the earth remains, while the earth remains. Okay, so we've entered a new dispensation, in other words. Um, there's a new, a new phase of, of, uh, of the history of the world. And so, so let's just build out the implications of what this means, that everything that exists now Everything that you experience, that I experience, that's not annihilation, um, is because of God's grace. What, what should our attitude, what should our response be to that? How should we think about ourselves? Maybe in contrast to how the world thinks about itself in a secular age or in contrast to uh, some false religions. What comes to mind? Yes, Dinah. Thanksgiving that uh, we are not destroyed Yes. we're not without sin. Right, amen. Right. Thanksgiving. And uh that right, that's one response. What else? Humiliating humility, um God withdraws his hand and over his knife. So it withdraws the same race and uh all of our efforts would be not like it's not us keeping the world together. Right. right. We're not the ones keeping it afloat. Right. It's it's God's it's humility. Very good, yeah. I don't know if this is what you're but no doesn't need to turn around and build another ark. There's a sense of which they can out and multiply and do because of the promises. Uh the of preservation. It's not just let's hungry on and try to survive the next one. Yeah. That that's very good. This is this is now a, a foundation for action and for living in the world that God made. You can um you can have confidence that you can actually live in this world. You can actually... We're, we're going to get to that. Yeah, that's what I'm building towards. That's... that's um, Right. Any other thoughts before I give more answers? Um, also, you're not... Kind of similar to this humility piece, but it's not... Um, we'll give an illustration. So you guys know Aztec culture or Inca culture. I get them confused. But I think either Aztecs or... Incas believed that unless there was a human sacrifice every morning, the sun wouldn't come up. Right? This idea of we needed to propitiate the gods in order to experience the continuation of life. Well, if that's how you're living, you don't believe in grace. The sun comes up not because you propitiated the gods with blood sacrifice, but because God promised the sun would come up, right? Uh, and so, uh, it doesn't depend on you. It really doesn't. It, it only depends on God's grace. Now, I want to go on a limb here and do a little application that can be debated, but um, I think a lot of modern-day environmentalism is, is, a, is a neo-paganism that rejects this principle. That uh, the earth will be destroyed if humanity... Uh, doesn't get its act together and uh, uh, because of climate change. Now, I'm not saying that our actions with industrialization and what we do doesn't affect the environment, but what I am saying is, is if you have an apocalyptic mindset to human action in the world, then you've shifted from heaven and earth remain... The sun continues to rise. Life continues because of God's grace. You've rejected that. And you're now making it contingent upon humanity's collective action. Right? At a spiritual level, there's very little difference from a worldview that says if we don't control everyone's actions and reverse the clock on global warming or we're all going to die, very little difference between that outlook and Aztec sacrificing people every day to make the sun come up. Um, again, it's, uh, the application of this is, is very real. Another application is... Um, yeah, go ahead. It's extreme. It's so extreme. I know. It's extreme. Well, it can be debated, but it's, uh, it's a level of degree. I'll, I'll agree that the degree to which um, we're experiencing uh, a rejection of God's grace uh, might be different. But the same spiritual uh, problem, I would say, is at the heart of both. Yes? Yes. Basically is God. We we have the mantle control of all things on humanity. Right. Exactly. Almost like we got to propitiate ourselves. And so you know, a lot of a lot of the solutions are mass hold on a second. A, whole, a lot of the solutions are are masochistic, right? Uh I'm it all depends on us. Uh if we don't fix this, we're all going to die. So, what do we need to do we've got to enact policies that uh, are really bad for poor people because it increases the cost of energy uh, it radically increases the cost of food because our uh, we think that cows are are uh, are destroying the world through their flatulence and and things like that so it's just it's just again if, if, if it all depends on you well, this vision of man's actually not ennobling you 're going to oppress man so you can save man it, you just get all sorts of Pagan ways of living in the world. Um, oppressing, hating God, hating one another, you get in the same spot. So, sorry, I cut you off. Fair enough, and I think I would agree with you that what I'm saying should not give us license to ignore the environment. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand me. Like, if you pollute uh, our creek uh, with cyanide and mercury and all sorts of biohazards, like, we will not be able to stay in this building. Like, your environmental degradation causes real consequences. What I'm arguing against, though... Is this apocalyptic um, vision that my sin is going to affect humanity's survival as a species? That's that's what I'm speaking against. So I'm not arguing against the fact that uh, we're not responsible, I'm not arguing against the fact that we have an obligation uh, to not uh, play fast and loose with God's creation. I'm just saying our survival as a species does not depend on it. Our survival as a species depends on God's grace, period. Um, End of story. Yes. Right, right. Exactly. And and here's the here's where I would say this type of everything depends on man takes you. It takes you to Bab- it takes you to the Tower of Babel. This this idea of rejecting common grace and rejecting that we're dependent on God for these things. What does man and his pride do in rejection against this this covenant? He builds a city by himself and tries to get to heaven in his own strength. It's the same it's the same root idea of everything depends on man, not on God's grace. So that, that's what I want to leave you with. I, the environmental thing is one application, I think, of this that we can see in our day. It's, it's, it's getting at the heart. I'm, I'm getting at the heart here with these comments, is, is do you believe your every move, your every, exi- every breath, is by the grace of God, or do you believe it's all, that it depends on you? And fundamentally, uh, God speaks to all of humanity, not just believers, that in me, you live and move and have our being. Okay, so this is, um, there's a type of faith here. I want to talk about maybe something that you haven't, I I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about this until recently, but there's a kind of faith in God um, at the level of common grace that we need to have. Um, Faith in common grace is not the right term, but it's, it's what does faith in God look like based upon this revelation that the whole earth is sustained by his grace. Um, Hebrews 11.3 uh, talks about this. Uh, the, the Hebrews 11, you know, the Hall of Fame of Faith, it, it doesn't start with Abraham. It starts with our faith in God and his creation. Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand first that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. That's You have to believe that the world was created by God for anything else in the rest of this book to make sense. Your life has to be from God. Every move you have has to be from God. Not just in terms of where did your raw material come from in a scientific sense, but how are you sustained even now? How do you exist right now? It comes from the word of God. Uh, and then again, Paul says in Acts seventeen twenty eight, quoting quoting pagan philosophers when he says this, "In him we live and move and have our being; we are indeed his offspring." So there, there's a kind of the the first act of faith that you you need to have to to understand what God's up to in the world is to believe that you come from him and that you're sustained by him. Uh, this this is critical. Uh, Hebrews eleven seven then talks about Noah's faith. What kind of how does how does The writer of Hebrews described Noah's faith this time. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events, as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so, we see a movement beyond God's creation of the world and sustaining the world to a faith in the fact that God has the right to do with the world what He wants to do, and Ab- Noah rejected the world as it was passing away, and he he put his whole life into that ark. I mean, th- think about what it was like for Ab- Noah to build the ark. For you know, it took him over a hundred years to build it. Um, why do you need a big boat in the middle of a fertile a fertile land? Like, wh- what's What's going on? Implicit in his act of building the ark and looking forward to a new creation after the flood, he's condemning the world. In other words, he's saying, you people, uh, what you're living for is not what I'm living for. I'm living for a world that is created by God under grace. Uh, So this belief in the creator, this belief in the God of common grace um, is essential. Any, Any thoughts on that? And um, so moving now to kind of, okay, we, we have God's grace, God's preserving us. What is now, the, what is God preserving us for? And so what we have in Genesis 9 shouldn't be new to us. It's, it's a repeat of what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, except it's under grace now. Um, God blessed Noah and his sons to them. Uh, we see this uh, in Genesis one twenty eight, and God blessed them. Right, God's blessing, God's pre- again blessing, th- blessing like grace is God's presence. When you see blessing, it's it's God's presence with man. It's it's God's um, you know the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord, make His face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you. Beholding God, being with God, is fundamentally what's promised in this in this blessing. God's with man. And then we see a repeat of be fruitful and multiply. Again, echoing Genesis 1.28. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. Genesis 9.1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. Okay. So uh, we're now able to continue to be the image of God and to apply that image in spreading God's image over the whole world. All right? the, the, these same categories that we talked about uh, are, are affirmed and continued. Um, we're going to get to the negative part of that soon, but, but the categories have been preserved. So, uh, But the point here I want to make is, is you can take this, this, that chart we talked about with uh, you know, man's dignity, potential responsibility, communion, and home, and those categories are still real. You can still seek those things. you still ought to be those things. you still ought to do those things, and you are empowered to do those things by the grace of God. You don't have to be a believer to participate in those things. the degree to which it's going to depend on you know, redemption and, and also the extent to which God's grace is in your culture and with you personally, but everyone participates in this in some extent, to some extent. Uh, even the tiniest child among us has a desire to be more than they currently are, you know, potential. I mean, children, what do they want to do once they're able to interact with adults? They want to imitate, right? They want to say the same words. Someone sees dad lighting a fire outside, the kid wants to take a match and start, you know, starting forest fires, you know, all by themselves, you know. I mean, kids, they don't have the wisdom to know how to how to use their potential? They need trained, but but this desire to to do and to be—it's it's it's very good. It's it's part of God's common grace that He preserves this this desire in in every uh, living person. Um, this uh, you know, some philosophers talk about you know the will to live, the the, the will to live and to be is is uh, is. Many build their whole philosophies around it, and and they go in weird directions with it. But uh, we can affirm that you know there's there's worse places to start with your philosophy. Uh, better better to be than not to be, as as Hamlet said. Uh, and one quick point of application: you you can see, and, and this kind of reinforces my point that we're going back into a pagan mindset of appeasing uh, either the god of ourself or the god of the environment or whatever. Um, People despair of existence today. Deaths of despair, rise in suicides, rise in just coping. Um, That book I passed around, uh, You Are uh, Are Not Your Own, um, really really gets at this. uh, In a world that does not see itself as living under common grace, and they don't see fundamentally existence as a good thing that God is doing, they start to think like, well, maybe it's just better if I wasn't alive. Maybe it's better if I just create chaos all around me. You know, uh, so it's not these these things are not unrelated. These phenomena that we see around us, this despair and the, this self medicating and coping, this is not unrelated to a rejection of the covenant God, who is preserving all of creation. Okay. So, but there's a problem. So, we have the, the basis to do these things, the call to them. We have God's promise of grace as we do these things, but we still have a problem, right? And what's, what's the problem? Sin, sin. We're still sinners. Uh, and we see that here. Genesis 8, 21. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That's still the case, right? So what we have here is we have dominion, the image of God, reaffirmed, right? But it's in a state of tension and strain and suffering, okay? Same categories, same vision for man's vocation is reaffirmed, but it's it's thwarted at every point, right? And so uh, there's struggle, and every modern philosophy that you can read about. I mean, I was I was reading a lecture on Freud today, or not today, um, a couple days ago, and he's talking about his idea of personality which is really how most of our culture views personality is you guys heard of id ego superego you've uh, id is kind of just your your raw passions usually violent and sexual it's just it's just you just want something and then you have the superego which is like your conscience or the forces of culture that tell you don't do something or puts up some kind of standard and then you you're the ego and you're trying to mediate between your 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 bodily urges, and then the forces of culture and law that tell you not to do that, right? And so Freud's vision of personality is just a man alienated from himself, in constant tension, and uh, we can critique, I'm not saying Freud, this is on tape, I'm not saying Freud has all the answers, don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, even he recognizes we are just a bundle of contradictions at, at our essence. You know, we, we have this potential, we have this vision, but we have these passions that war against us, and we have this oppressive culture that is sometimes right, sometimes wrong, and it's just, we're caught in the middle, right? And pick, pick any other philosopher. You know, They all have some take on what's wrong with people, right? Well, the Bible has an answer for that. Bible's critique is man uh, is the image of God defaced, right? We have all of this glory, but it's marred. And we also have uh, evil in terms of Satan and spiritual powers acting upon us and actively tempting us. So it's not just us, you're actually at war with other creatures in the cosmos. And that's the problem. So uh, if we talk about dominion, and this is kind of like the last summary of dominion, in this class and the rest of it, we're going to be slowly shifting to faith. Um, but dominion is always pursued in suffering. Always, that's, that is our condition. Um, and quick word about kind of the experience of that for men, a quick word about the experience of that for women. So this goes back to the curse. Um, Man's curse. Someone tell me what man's fundamental summary of man's curse. When God curses Adam, what what's he say? Ground won't yield its fruit to you. Ground won't yield its fruit to you. Right. Well, what if I don't want to go work the ground? You'll starve. Right. But uh, the curse, as it's experienced most acutely, at least as to the man is when you go into the world and engage the world and try to produce something, okay? At the point where you're trying to do something productive, futility hits you, right? In other words, the suffering and the curse is most poignant as you're striving to do what's most fundamental to your calling as the man, Right? so that, so, one response to many men that many men struggle with today, I think throughout culture, but it seems like especially today, is just it 's better to live in grandma 's basement till i 'm thirty five than to face the world of the curse right in one sense that 's not an irrational response. I can experience less curse if I just don 't even try to till the ground <laughs> now again that 's only possible because we have such a pampered society where um, thanks to the hard work of older generations, they have the means to support their 35-year-old men in their basements. Um, That wasn't always the case, and that's why we have so many contradictions in our society because there's so much wealth that masks the effects of the curse. But you get the point. Um, And that's what I think is so discouraging, especially for men, is why am I not experiencing vitality in life? It's like, well, the most productive things you can do are the things that are most cursed, right? But also be encouraged. And this is kind of the positive uh, spin on it. um, Reaffirmation of God's grace. In one sense, as you're doing the hardest things, as as you're entering the world and trying to cultivate the ground, and you're experiencing the curse, in one sense you can be comforted because you're doing something real. You're doing something productive. It's, it's hard, but be encouraged that as you engage in that struggle, you are doing, um, you're being a real human. You're being a real image bearer in a cursed world. Okay, Thoughts on that? That's kind of like more geared towards the men. I mean, obviously, women work and they, it, it affects them too, but I think especially men these days struggle with this idea of purpose in my work and being discouraged by it, but I would say that's don't stop, keep pushing, just expect the curse. Yes? Yes, right. The exact that Satan was trying to push was you don't have to. Right. Um, and Jesus like, no, oh, i got to do the will of my father. So it's just really, I guess I had to father, Yes, yes. The, the most productive dominion that pushes against the curse in the most meaningful ways is always accompanied by the most suffering. Right? I mean, that's in one sense why the cross is so horrific. The most productive thing the king could do for the most people in the world had to be the most horrific thing. This is, this is that principle of, of Christ was the ultimate image of God. He did the ultimate thing, the ultimate dominion. It cost him the ultimate price with the ultimate amount of suffering, but it was the most productive thing, right? So this, there's so much more to say with that, but that's just get that dynamic in your head. Okay, shifting now to women, how is the woman's curse described? What's, what's fundamentally the dynamic going on there? Pain and childbirth, right. Now, yes, and the relationship with the husband, right. There's this idea, and again, this, this is generalization. Um, the Bible puts these things for us to talk about, I think, general categories of how, how these operate. Uh, there's... Um, But the woman experiences the curse fundamentally in in being acted upon, right? A woman cannot impregnate herself, right? She has to be impregnated by someone, right? A, A woman doesn't experience the conflict of marriage unless she's in the marriage to begin with. And so women experience the curse more often than not as they are acted upon in this world. Compared to men. When men go into the world, that's when they experience the curse most acutely. They're going forward, they're, they're cultivating, they're working. Women experience the curse most acutely as they're acted upon. I mean, I mean, why do I say that? And where do we see that in our culture? Why is abortion and birth control so important in, in a secular worldview, in, in a feminist worldview? Why, why is that the, the touch point? For so much of, of, this, of their project. Any thoughts on that? Yes? What they say is that women have the right to be as unpregnant as men. Correct. But why do they want that? Why do they want that? Mm-hmm. To have control. They don't want to be. I think that's right, right. But fundamentally, with, c- connect that with the curse. Where are women going to experience the curse most acutely? In childbearing in the context of childbearing, and bringing forth life from their very bodies. So how do you guarantee you're not going to experience the curse most profoundly? Don't get pregnant. Right? Have control. It's, it's the same heart issue at play with the man who's afraid to go out into the world because he's afraid of suffering, so it's better to stay in mom's basement. A similar um, heart of wanting to avoid the curse, but in the female context is, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want it to be possible for me to get pregnant. I don't want to put myself in a position to have to be acted upon. Right? And so, um, I think understanding this dynamic helps us, as men and women, understand when you have faith in God's grace, that he's empowered you to be a true human in this world, think about the application of that. Think about the application of that. He's called you to act as a man, to cultivate the earth. It's going to be cursed. He's called you as a woman to bring forth life, to bring forth the joy of new life. It's it's a beautiful thing. And yet the response in our day is, I I don't want that life (laughs) because it's so painful. It's so painful. So both of these things are a play, and um, I want to this blessing and curse go side by side, and that is a theme that we're going to see in the rest of Scripture. And um, so, too much content here. I uh, <laughs> have a trouble packing it all in because uh, we only got one more week after this, and I got to I got to I got to land the plane. Um, so let me just talk for three minutes about this theme because I think it wraps it up. So, this theme of blessing and curse always going together is, is really a theme that really ties this whole project um, together narratively. So, how do we see that most profoundly as we move into Abraham's life? Um, sacrifice of Isaac. So, bear with me here. Just kind of go back to your biblical memory from what you read last time you read Genesis. Uh, Mount Moriah is where Abraham is told to offer the sacrifice to Isaac. Mount Moriah is associated with Jerusalem, which is also associated with uh, where Melchizedek was the priest king. And when Abraham meets Melchizedek, he meets him and and Melchizedek says, blessed are you, the the Lord's blessings upon you. So Melchizedek's uh, Jerusalem becomes a place where Abraham receives a blessing. But then he has to go up to Mount Moriah uh, near the same place and offer a sacrifice to Isaac. And so, that's a curse. I mean, that's... So this place of Jerusalem is both blessing and curse. Right? And that, that theme is also spread throughout the whole temple system where the sacrifices kind of epitomize this this union between the curse of sin but also the means of blessing. And then, where does that point us to ultimately with Christ? Golgotha. Again, the the same place where uh, Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, the cross becomes the place of ultimate curse but also ultimate blessing. But then, as we embody Christ we are in him what are our lives as christians i want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection sharing in his suffering right so that's this as i as we talk about it's all it's all here in genesis 9 it's all here in genesis 3 these these core themes of the curse and the blessing um Kind of always together until Christ ultimately does away with them, um, and uh, this is the tension we live in uh, with with dominion. And so, on the one hand, <laughs> go forth in the world, get out of your mom's basement. Um, if you're a woman, you know, pr- pursue marriage, pursue family life. If God gives it to you, don't don't turn away from it. Um, but it's cursed. <laughs> it's all cursed. So the call is is twofold. Uh, Do it all, but you're going to fail. So uh, that's, in one sense, the perfect segue to the life of Abraham because Abraham enters into this common grace uh, world and he's called to take us forward to someone who will put an end to all this and bring us into a place of, of... of true rest and true dominion, uh, free from the curse. So that's, that's where Abraham comes in. And in the last couple of minutes, I want to talk about Abraham and common grace. And that's what these verses are here for. Um, we often don't think of Abraham experiencing common grace, but I'll just summarize what these verses talk about. So this is, he's called out from Ur, Genesis 12:5, with all his possessions and his servants, or slaves, So Abraham's a guy who's got a lot of possessions, got a lot of slaves. Um, He's a man of of means. Uh, 13.2, we we read about, um, now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. Right? This was a man who was, he was a nomad, but he had a lot of possessions. Uh, He was experiencing a lot of common grace in terms of material. Uh, He knew how to use his materials for productive ends. Right? You don't have livestock and silver and gold if you're an incompetent, uh, bumbling fool who can't manage property and can't uh, uh, manage people. Uh, 14, 13 through 16, we read about Abraham being a general. He had 318 uh, trained men who were able to take on uh, kings in the region, and he had alliances with other uh, uh, heads of tribes or, or, or people. And that kind of comes to a head in Romans, uh, Romans, Genesis 23. Abraham wants to buy a burial plot for Sarah when she dies. And so he goes to the Hittites in the land, and the Hittites answer Abraham and say, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Abraham's a prince in terms of his wealth, in terms of his abilities, in terms of his his stature and standing. I mean, this is someone... Who's been called out by God, but he's actively engaged in the world. He's actively using all the means at his disposal to bless and prosper his people. And the point I want to make with that is it's not enough. It's not enough. Right? God calls Abraham to more, He calls him to more, but He calls him to more at the point where He has the least. Right? What Abraham doesn't have is children. What Abraham doesn't have is a land to call his own. And it's at that point that God promises him something that that common grace cannot provide and that he has to believe will come to him as a matter of faith. And so this is the segue to faith where we have all the ammunition we need to be what we ought to be because of God's common grace, but it's not enough to bring us back to the garden, it's not enough to bring us full circle, it's not enough to solve our deepest needs. And so that's, the, that's where God meets Abraham. Abraham kind of straddles God's common grace and his redemptive grace. And his experience in living out these things is fundamentally what faith is all about. So that's the cliffhanger for next week. We'll try to wrap it all up and uh, any questions before we conclude? No. Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you uh, broken and humbled. Uh, we we cannot be what your Word calls us to be. We are under a curse. We feel it in our bodies we cannot be what you've made us. And yet, even now, we are experiencing your grace. And we thank you for that. We praise you for that. And even now, you're upholding the whole world. Even the world that curses you, that blasphemes your name, you are giving them sunshine. You're giving them oxygen. You're giving them food. Lord, I pray that uh, we would uh, just humble ourselves and receive these things with thanksgiving. I pray that you would increase our faith, uh, that you would encourage us uh, with your word, and that uh, in this next hour of worship, we would taste more of what it will mean to... uh, live in you and through you for all of eternity, uh, free from sin, uh, beholding your face. Uh, We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.